Second Samuel, chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go and take a census of Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab and the army commanders with him, Go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and enroll the fighting men so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times over, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and the army commanders. So they left the presence of the king to enroll the fighting men of Israel. After crossing the Jordan, they camped near Arioer, south of the town in the gorge, and they went through Gad and on to Jazer. They went to Gilead in the region of Tatim, Hodshai, and on to Danjan and around toward Sidon. Then they went toward the fortress of Tyre and all the towns of the Hivites and Canaanites. Finally, they went on to Beersheba in the Negev of Judah. After they had gone through the entire land, they came back to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 able-bodied men who could handle a sword, and in Judah, 500,000. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men, and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Before David got up the next morning, the word of the Lord had come, had come to God, the prophet, David's seer. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land? Or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you? Or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of the time designated, and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. May God bless the reading of his word. So we begin by thinking this morning back to last week, where we celebrated, commemorated two major events, one local, one worldwide. Last week, on April 15th, was the second anniversary of the 2013 Marathon bombing, which cost uh, three lives and about 300, almost 300 people were injured at the Marathon bombing. Now, that's probably a little bit distant. I mean, we're, we're Bostonians, so we care about this. But think of what it feels like when it happens in your immediate family, 
You know, if you were the parents of the eight-year-old, you know how often we react is, why, God? Why does this happen to me? But it was only three deaths and 300 injured. But we have this question, why? Or particularly when it hits home to us as a family, why, why me? Why us? The question is natural at one level. And we should be sympathetic to it at that level. At another level, the only reason the question happens or occurs to us is because we've ignored history or we haven't emotionally connected with history. We haven't cared about history. Uh, last week was a commemoration of another event, the second anniversary of the, of the marathon bombing, but it was the seven, 72nd anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Now, if you're going to commemorate World War II or the Holocaust against the Jews, there's a whole lot of events you could commemorate. But the 72nd anniversary of the Warsaw Uprising was embraced by many because it was the one time where there was a massive, where the Jews organized and turned against the Nazi regime. Although the remaining Jews were all slaughtered, at least they stood up for themselves and held out for a month before they died. What had happened was that Poland was occupied by Germany, and Warsaw had a large population of Jews at the time, three to 400,000 Jews. So the first thing the Germans did to control the Jewish population was to herd them all into a one-square-mile ghetto. 300, 400,000 people, one-square-mile ghetto. If they had been a bit more patient, they didn't need to massacre anybody. They could have just let them die through disease and famine in such tight quarters. But then on Passover Eve... In 1943, the, the Germans had already deported so many, and the Jewish resistance allowed the deportation because they thought they were being deported to a concentration camp, or to a labor camp, to a labor camp. Only after the process was two-thirds or more underway did they find out they were going to death camps. So then they organized resistance. But when an army is coming into your ghetto, and, and all you've got is a few pistols and one machine gun, there's not much hope that you're going to successfully resist. And the Holocaust as a whole, whether the, the ghetto uprising or the Holocaust as a whole, created this huge crisis of faith for Jews. The Old Testament says they're God's chosen people. If there is a God... How can such things happen? Now, the question is certainly urgent, and it's certainly legitimate. We ask the question when much smaller things happen in our lives. At one level, we really should be sympathetic with that question. But at another level, the question arises only because we fail to study history and learn from it, and connect emotionally with the past. It's not our lives, it's not our history, what do we care? Because the Holocaust in the 40s during World War II was not the first Holocaust 
that Jews had been through. It was at least the fourth. So if we, if we for our lives, or if Israel for its national history, had read history, this is an urgent question to ask, but it's a question that, that should have been answered in our lives long before a crisis hits now, and should have been answered for Israel long before the 1940s, because it was the fourth time, not the first. So we study history. God gave us history to prepare us for our lives and for our world. Because this kind of thing does recur, and not just in Israel. So God gives us history so we can learn from others before we face that sort of suffering. I mean, Patek shares about Uganda, which seems to be relatively peaceable now for a brief period of time. But there's been 30 years of chaos in Uganda's history, including the persecution and murder of Christians. And you can say when it happens to you, God, why? Or we can read the Bible and then ask God why and prepare for any events that might happen in our world or in our private lives. So the sermon title for this morning is one of the very smartest things you can do. Now, I would never have chosen that title except last week, for those of you who are just visiting for the wedding or new here, last week we looked at one of the very dumbest things you could do. And that title was appropriate because King David committed adultery. And whether King David or us, that is by far one of the dumbest things you can do. I mean, it's just disastrous for your life, for everybody around you. Yet in one sense... One of the smartest things we can do is what we're trying to do now over the last series of 20-plus sermons. Now, for those of you who are visiting or newcomer, you know, you get grace. The rest of you, we start this morning with a pop quiz. Take a look at your... Oh, and by the way, there's a rationale for the pop quiz. You can... I can stand here and talk. Every 30, 30 minutes, every week, from now until Jesus comes again. And you'll learn next to nothing. You can take notes. And you can go home. And you can study those notes. And studies show, academics, studies show students that you will learn next to nothing. The only way you learn is by forcing yourself to go through an exercise in recall. So consider this and exercise and recall. For those of you who are visitors, we do not have pop quizzes every week. Just when I'm uh, concerned that people, there's something important here we need to learn. So I give you two aids here. The first thing we looked at in this series was creation and fall. The second thing we looked at was restoration in Adam's, Abraham's three promises. Now, you've got a bulletin in front of you and it has eight blank lines. Well, it had more than eight. Fill out the first eight. Now, what we'll do is we'll call up anyone who gets only one out of those eight. We'll call them up on the stage. You know, you should always come to church or like you're going to class with a pen and a pencil, right? Pen or a pencil. Fill out the first eight. If you don't have a pen or a pencil, uh, prick your finger with a pin. Blood is okay. We don't care how you fill it out. Okay? You've got about one minute because we don't want to spend too long on this. We've got some visitors here. 
first eight blanks. Creation and fall, restoration. What do we learn about Israel's history here? This is just review. Thirty seconds. Should be on the tip of your tip of your brain, should be on the front. Anybody need a pen? Yeah, working in small groups, that's okay. We got it? First eight blanks. That's all you got to fill in. First eight blanks. Okay. Look, here's the deal. I studied theology for, I don't know, ten years. I taught theology at a seminary graduate school for sixteen years. I've been here fifteen years. Only recently have I been reading books that talk about this and then figuring out a little bit, you know, I'm standing on the, on the shoulders of giants. I've figured out, taking it further than what other people have done, but I, they really depend a lot on what other people have done. But here's the thing, it comes down to this. And why this is so important. All you really have to know is five or six ideas and you will know the basic idea storyline of the Bible from beginning to end. Five or six ideas. How cheap is that? You know, how easy is that? And then anytime you read the Bible, you can plug it into one of those five or six places. So let's look at it. There is one story arc over the whole Bible. And part of it relates to the first two holocausts that Israel faced. So creation and fall, and then restoration. So creation and fall, you've got two ideas. God created the world a certain way, and he built into it certain great benefits. And then fall, those three great benefits were lost. Then restoration, we come back to those three benefits. God promises to restore those three benefits lost through the fall that were in original creation. And so we, we see, first, God had invited Adam and Eve, commissioned Adam and Eve to multiply and fill the earth. And what happened? The first thing after the fall, they started killing each other. You see the threat that the fall poses to creation. And then in restoration, what was his first promise to Abraham? And by the way, if you want to get this in the right order, it's easier to start with Abraham and work your way back. What's the first thing he promised in Abraham? Was to give them descendants. And within the book of Genesis up to Exodus chapter 1, he gave them descendants. Solving the fall, at least in its threat to multiply and the creation, uh, multiplying of people around the world. Then the next, they were given a place in creation, in Eden. And then the fall, they were thrown out of Eden. But then in the restoration, Israel was given a land, Palestine, as a new place. A, a second, not as good as Eden but at least a place for themselves to replace what they lost. And then thirdly, creation was for all people. And then the fall hurt all people, corrupted all people. 
And then in the restoration, what we have is the first promise of restoration, the descendants was to Israel. The second promise, the land was to Israel. But then in the third promise, they're going to bless the whole world. Only we don't see that in the Old Testament. What we see is the descendants. We see the land in the books of Exodus and Numbers and Joshua. And then we see the blessing to the world. Now, we would spend a lot of time on this. You know, it's been a few weeks since we were into it. Six or eight weeks since we were into it. We've spent several months on this. These are the basic ideas, foundational ideas. There's two more ideas that fit in here. Is that all of this depends on certain conditions. God says, God gives. God's gracious. And then he says, well, what? But if you want to retain these things, if you want to keep enjoying these things, there's two things God asks. And it's not that hard. He says, worship me and obey me. And this, you could say, is the basic contract, the covenant between God and his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. And really captures most of what's going on in the Old Testament. There's only one piece missing. But before we get there, what we've been looking at for the last six weeks or so seems to be totally irrelevant, totally something different. We've been looking at the Bible and politics. You know, we saw from 1 Samuel chapter 1 to 7, we saw the life of Samuel, and we saw that basically Israel didn't trust God, and they wanted a king. And then from 8 to 15, we had Saul start. But Saul, God chose him. And Saul started out well, but it didn't last but a little while before he commits sacrilege. And then disobedience. He was told to worship and obey, and instead he commits sacrilege and disobeys. And then in the second half of 1 Samuel, or the last section, of, then Saul gets paranoid, and God says, look, because of your sin, I'm going to take the throne away from you, I'm going to give it to David. But Saul doesn't want to lose the throne, so instead of repenting, he tries to kill David. Again, the fall, you see. And then in 2 Samuel, David starts out. And he's a good king. You know, he's not vengeful. He puts God at the center of their country. He's a good king. But then David has an affair. And he really devastates everything. He loses his throne. He gets thrown out of his country. He goes into exile. He damages his family. He hurts his heritage, his entire country. Now, the question is, you know, salvation history, we had those first six blanks, those first two or three ideas, and now we have politics. And the question is, how do these two things fit together? Why does the author spend so much time on politics? First and second Samuel, politics. Now, we're only halfway through. We're going to go do first and second Kings, and it's going to be politics. It's all about kings. So why? What's going on here? The two fit together. See, here's the creation the biblical story. Here's creation and restoration. Then you've got to skip ahead of where we are yet. When we get to the end of 2 Kings, here's what we're going to see at the end of 2 Kings. We're going to see two holocausts. Now, there weren't as many deaths involved because the population wasn't that large. But these holocausts were every bit as brutal as the Nazi holocaust. Israel is going to be destroyed as a nation. And these three blessings of creation, 
these three curses of the fall, these three promises of restoration, all three of them are going to again be violated. It's the same three things that are going to happen to them. The descendants are going to be massacred. By the tens of thousands, Jews are going to die. They're going to lose their land. By this point, Israel will be actually two countries. First, the northern part gets put into exile, then the southern part gets put into exile. They'll be off the land. Some of Israel, the, about five, six percent of the, five, six of the country will cease to exist. They'll never come back. The southern part of the country will return, but only a small fraction. Most Jews will lose their land forever or until the 1940s. And then the blessing to the world. Remember God had promised Abraham that he'd be a blessing to the world? Not in these holocausts. You know, by definition, right? A holocaust is the curse against Israel by the world. The question is, what does this tell us about God? How could this happen to the people of God? He created all things good. Yes, they fell and things got damaged. But then he promises them restoration. And what does he give them? He gives them holocaust. How, how can this be? And this explains why he spends so much talking, time talking about politics. It is what it is because of politics. He laid down two conditions, worship and obey. And what we see as we go through 1 Samuel, what we see as we go through 2 Samuel is they move away from obedience and worship. And what we see as we move into 1 Kings and 2 Kings is they move further away. For 400 years, God waits patiently for Israel to worship and obey. And when they don't worship, they commit idolatry. And when they don't obey, they disobey. God waits hundreds of years for them to repent, and they refuse. And finally, the Holocaust comes. And this is what First and Second Samuel are explaining. The kings lead the direction of the country. The country is hopeless, but at least if you get a good leader, if you get a Moses, if you get a Joshua, maybe the, king, maybe the kingdom can come back. Maybe the people will obey. And God gives them the best king he can. God gives them Samuel. And they say, we don't want Samuel. We don't want God to be our king. We want a king, a human king. And God gives them the Saul, the best candidate he has at the time. And Saul leads them into sacrilege and disobedience. And then Saul gets paranoid and tries to kill David, his successor, when God tries to give him another king. And then God gives him David, and David starts out well. But what does David do? The same thing every other king is going to do. David turns bad. He commits adultery and commits murder. This explains why the holocausts. It's not God's unfaithful. It's not that God doesn't love the people. God gave all this grace. And God gave so much time. And he kept calling the people back to repentance. And they kept turning away to worship of idols and to disobedience. And then eventually the Holocaust strike. So let's just take a quick look at the one passage that Terry read this morning. It's Second Samuel 22 to 24 because it illustrates this whole thing in microcosm in just three chapters. Second Samuel 22, 23, 
David is summarizing his life. He's getting ready to die. He's summarizing his life in prayer to God. And what does he say? God, thank you for all your manifest grace. Thank you for all the things you've done for me. And he goes on and on and on about how good God has been to him. And then what does he do in chapter 24? He says, oh, uh, I need to count my soldiers. Now, this is hugely significant because, not significant to us, but it was significant then because God had said, look, I will fight for you. You trust me. And sometimes God fought and conquered a big army with just a small band of men. But then when God's people don't trust him, when God's king doesn't trust him, he says, oh, I've got to start counting my men, make sure I've got enough men, men to wage war. And Joab, his general said, his commander-in-chief, or commander, says, no, 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 no. Don't do this. It'll offend God. And David says, no, I've got to do it. And David has just prayed, God, you've been so wonderful and so caring and so nurtured me. And now he turns away from God and he counts his men. Then Joab comes back with the head count. And then David decides, maybe this wasn't such a good idea. And he repents. And he says, God, don't punish me or don't punish the people. And then you have a very, very small scale holocaust. Because it wasn't a huge, long sin over hundreds of years. And God says, which, which of these three ways do you want me to punish you? And David, rather three years or three months or three days, David chose the three days and 70,000 people died. God had said, don't. And David said, God, you've been so good and gracious to me. And then David said, I don't trust you. And so... This is just a microcosm. We're going to look at first kings, and we're going to see king after king after king after king. We won't look at them all. We'll look at a representative sample. Because first kings, second kings, it's a litany of kings, about 40 kings. Out of 40 kings, about four of them were good. All the others were wicked. They worshipped other gods, and they were immoral. They didn't obey. They didn't worship. And then the Holocaust came against Israel, the first two. Now, the question is, what is God saying to us through all of this? You'd have to take some of this, my word on for some of this, because he doesn't say all of this in Second, in First uh, and Second Samuel. Some of what he says is in the New Testament. First of all, Jesus is always a part of this. Jesus and the Spirit. But what does Jesus say? A lot of people get this wrong. It's very common now to suppose that what Jesus says is, none of this applies to us. All of that is Old Testament. And, and God's gracious to us, and he wasn't to them. And, and, and we can live however we want. They couldn't, but we can live however we want, and God will be gracious to us. And God will, it doesn't say that. Here's what Jesus says to us. Another holocaust was due. Because for hundreds of years, God's people had ignored him. Another holocaust was due. But this time, God said, no holocaust. This time, God said, I'll send Jesus. And Jesus will die for his people. So that those who turn and put their faith in him, those who turn and serve him, will be saved from the holocaust. And Jesus came, and God's people killed him. And then he rose again, and the gospel was preached, inviting people. To worship and obey Jesus so that they could avoid the Holocaust. The kind of thing we'll celebrate this afternoon 
the decisions that people have made to worship and obey Jesus, the, the, what we'll celebrate the baptism this afternoon. That opportunity was presented in first century Palestine after Jesus' death and resurrection. And the bulk of Israel ignored it. And then in AD 70, there was a third Holocaust where the Romans came in and destroyed the nation and the people of Israel. And they never had a land again until the 1940s. Jesus comes to take the punishment due us with the same invitation that God has always given his people. Worship me, obey me, live for me, live the way I call you to live, and there will be salvation. There always is still the same conditions. And so you think about the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, for those of you who know the Bible well. You remember God's word to the churches. God came to the churches through angels and he said, Look, repent, follow me, or I'll take away your lampstand. That threat is still there. Worship and obey. Or judgment. And God comes also to warn about a final holocaust. In Second Peter chapter 3, but the point of Second Peter chapter 3 is not so much that a holocaust is coming. The, second, the point of Second Peter chapter 3 is how extraordinarily surprising it is that the holocaust hasn't come yet. The people are saying, uh, skeptics are saying, what are you talking about this coming? He's never going to come. What are you talking about? It's been so long and the world continues as it always has. And Peter says in this response, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We get frustrated reading the Old Testament, at least this part of the Old Testament, because first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, 40 Kings, 400 years, and it's so dry. And it's so boring, and we can't track it. It's not our history. And what it is, is 40 generations and 400 years of God saying, come back to me. I'm patient. Come back to me, and you can be forgiven. And since Jesus' time and the Holocaust of AD 70, there's been 2,000 years where God is still saying to people around the world, there's still time. I'm an incredibly patient God. Come back to me. But the warning of Second Peter is there is a limit. At some point, God will stop. And in the meantime, what he calls us to, all people to, is to worship and to obedience. Let's pray together. Father, we want grace, all grace, all the time. We thank you for the depth of your grace. And yet we see from 722 B.C. We see from 587 B.C. We see from 70 A.D. that you do hold people accountable at some time. And you've, not, and you've been withholding accountability for two millennia now. Father, we pray for your grace, your patience to extend further. We pray also, Father, that your spirit would work by your word and hearts to call people back to you and that people would respond. We ask for your grace, and thank you for your patience. In Jesus' name, amen.